Take your Bible, if you would. We're going to continue a journey that we're going through a Holy Week. Take your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Uh, so we'll look at the several passages we'll f- uh, there in uh, that 14th chapter. We'll kind of focus on the end, but we'll look at some others in that, in that text as well. So as you're turning there. Uh, so we've been in this series where we're on this journey leading up to this culminating event. We're getting to some of the really key, uh, key parts of uh, of this event of the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So on Easter, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Anybody excited to celebrate that we have a Savior that has risen and, uh, and we have uh, just so much that, that, that the difference that that makes uh, in our lives. We have so much to celebrate. And so on this journey, we've had some different parts. We talked about early on that first week about uh, where Jesus is anointed in Bethany and uh, looking forward when they would, would, they, when they would uh, prepare a, a, a body for burial, they would anoint that body. And so in that symbolic way, they were anointing Jesus and he knew that his death was imminent. It wasn't going to be long. And so we saw that moment. We learned about the extravagant worship of, of Mary as she worships Jesus and anoints him. Uh, we saw uh, as Jesus enters in Jerusalem for that last time at the Passover with the throng of humanity that was coming into Jerusalem and they herald him as king shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. And we saw that high moment of worship as Jesus comes into the city. And then last week, if you were here, uh, we remembered with Jesus his last supper. We looked at Jesus with his disciples as he taught them, uh, and, and they didn't fully understand or fully grasp what he was talking about, but he, he taught them how the bread of that Last Supper represents the body that he was going to give for them, the, the blood rep- represented by the cup that he was going to shed. That scripture that reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so together as a church, Across our campuses, we took communion together. We remembered what Jesus did for us. And so we left Jesus with the disciples at that last supper. Judas uh, would leave early and he would go out to uh, betray Jesus. As he now has gone, the other disciples, to give you a little context so we kind of get to where we're going to end up today, I just want to kind of fill in some of the blanks. And so So Jesus, along with some of his disciples, they leave that upper room. It's now nighttime, and they walk through the streets of Jerusalem, walk outside, go past the Temple Mount area, go down the Kidron Valley, one side, up the other, into a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It would have been an olive grove overlooking the city. It was a place that Jesus had come to appreciate and love, a place where he could kind of be away from the city and, and all, the, all the, the busyness of that and just have a quiet place to pray and to be with the Lord. And that's what he did. And he's, he's praying and he's wrestling with, with, with this impending, you know, kind of the full weight of the sacrifice that he's about, to, that he's about to, to make. He's just wrestling with that in the garden. Disciples that were there with him uh, can't even, you know, hang with him in prayer, and they fall asleep, and we saw that. And as Jesus completes that time of prayer, those, those individuals that Judas had gone to get because he had betrayed Jesus. He had betrayed Jesus, for Scripture tells us, for 30 pieces of silver. Scholars say maybe it was a couple hundred dollars, maybe up to a couple thousand dollars. Not much to betray Jesus for. And so he brings with him this parade of thugs to have Jesus arrested. And 
here he is in the garden about to be arrested. Again, I want to give us some context because we're going to talk about the first part of the trial of Jesus today. And so hopefully you're there in Mark 14. I want to focus again the end of the chapter, but look at these first couple verses. Again, get the concept, con, uh, context. This happened a little bit before, but here's what the first couple verses say. And now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. If you remember, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. This was a marquee miracle. It was a very public miracle. And as, as people began to hear about the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead and began to talk and interact and with these people that had seen that happen, people, Jews especially, began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the religious leaders had decided, okay, we've got to get rid of Jesus. His popularity is growing. It's time. And so the chief priests and the scribes had come to that conclusion that once and for all, we need to get rid of the problem of Jesus. They wanted to be careful, though. The time and the place was important. They didn't want to do it where it would cause a riot with all these people now beginning to believe in Jesus. And so they didn't want to get the, the attention of the Romans. So they needed to do it quietly. They needed to figure it out. and needed to be smart about how they did it. And so they were looking for a way to, uh, to have him killed. And so verse 10 and 11 says, And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, one of the disciples, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So they decide that the place to do it is the garden. The garden, this place that Jesus uh, had just gotten accustomed to going to. It's outside the city walls. It's quiet. And we could do it at night. It'd be the perfect place. And so here, Judas, knowing that, that they're probably going to end up at the garden that night, he goes away to betray Jesus. And while he's away, uh, telling the, 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 those religious leaders, it's time. Je Jesus then has gone to the garden. He's been praying. And now Judas arrives now in the garden. There's a large crowd. Scripture tells us they're carrying clubs and swords sent by the chief priest and the elders of the people. Scripture tells us, and they grab Jesus. Judas kisses him, betrays him. This, the one that I kiss is the one. And so he does that. And they grab Jesus. And, and Peter, in just the way that Peter was, he, he jumps up and, and uh, with a sword swings at the men trying to protect Jesus. He cuts off the ear of Malchus, one of the servants of the high priest, Imagine the stories that Malchus would have to tell in subsequent years of the night, that night. Peter probably should have stuck to fishing, but uh, instead of sword play, uh, Peter uh, is, you know, just, just the way he was, just, just acting before he thought. And we see in that moment Jesus do his final miracle as he touches the ear of Malchus and as he heals his ear. And so with that context, with, the, with Judas having betrayed Jesus, with them now having a hold of him, and the disciples now scattered and running in fear, we see them take Jesus to the first part of the trial. And we find it in Mark, if you'll skip down to verse 53, with that context in mind, they lead Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And so it begins. The thing that Jesus had said was going to happen, he'd, he'd said on multiple occasions. Let me just remind you of one. Listen to this example. Jesus said this a long time before in, Math, in Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach, teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Exactly what God or what Jesus had said was going to happen. This is all according to the plan. And the plan begins to unfold. The Jewish leaders have been looking, as we read, looking for a way, looking for a time, looking for the chance to, to have Jesus killed. And we need to remember that it was the Romans who were ultimately in charge. They had conquered Israel, and, and the way the Romans operated, they would, over a conquered nation, they would allow the conquered people to have some semblance of power. They would allow them to still self-govern as long as they kept the peace and paid their taxes. And so that's what was going on. And the Jewish Jewish leader, they, they still had some authority. And so this Jewish assembly, the equivalent of the Supreme Court, had gathered now. It's nighttime. And they, they bring Jesus in because they're trying to find grounds to then take him, because they didn't have the authority to kill somebody, but they're going to find grounds to take him to Pilate, who was in charge, the Romans, to have him killed, executed. And so we're going to look at just this first part of the trial. But let me give you an overview of the rest. Because this part of the trial is what you might call the religious part with the Jews, this Sanhedrin, this, this religious body, this, this Jewish council, again, the equivalent of the Supreme Court. But then they, he sent, from there, he sent to Pilate. Pilate was the, the governor of this land. He was the Roman governor. He was in charge of this area. He had the power over life and death in this area. He was the representative of Rome. We know that Pilate, when he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, he said, oh, well, that's, that's Herod's jurisdiction. The, the, the Romans had put a puppet leader, basically, that was Herod. He was a Jewish guy, and he was over Galilee in another area. And so, well, I'll send him, Pilate decides, I'll send him to Herod. He's where this should go. And so, Jesus is sent to Herod uh, during this whole trial part. He doesn't find any reason to have him killed. And so he sends him back to Pilate where ultimately that's where under the pressure of the crowd and the pressure of the Jewish leadership, Pilate finally makes the decision to have Jesus crucified. So that's the, that's the big picture of what happens. But we're just going to look at the, at the first part. And so let's go back to the text. In verse 54, the scene changes because it jumps back and forth between what's going on with Jesus before the, this religious body and then Peter who's followed. And it says this. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Remember, just a few minutes before, Peter has drawn his sword in order to try to protect Jesus in that moment. And we, and we, can, we can appreciate the bravery of Peter. Peter is the guy that said, when Jesus said that the, the disciples are going to be scattered, he, Peter's the guy that's like, no, I, I will stand with you. I will go with you to your death if that's what it takes. I, I'll be by your side. And so here Scripture says that he's following, but he's following at a distance. And before we totally throw Peter, I mean, and how many sermons have you had preached where Peter just totally gets thrown under the bus? But can we just give him some props that, that one, he tried to defend Jesus in the garden, and two, here he is in the courtyard of the high priest where this trial is taking place. And he's, he's there. He's trying to figure out what's going on, but he's at least there. We also should note the sketchy nature of this trial. It's taking place at night. That's not the way it normally would have been done or should have been done. Also, it's not taking place in a courtroom. 
in a place with the, where the Jewish, this, this group where they typically met was called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone. And that's not where they were meeting. They were meeting in the, the, the court of the high priest. So his house, basically, there's a courtyard, and, and, and that's where they were meeting. Very unusual, very unorthodox, very sketchy. Verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. But many bore false witness against him, but they, their, testimonies, their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him say... I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, according to Jewish law, in cases like this, there had to be an agreement between the witnesses. There had to be more than one witness to a crime, and you had to have multiple witnesses, at least two witnesses. And so they're trying to corroborate the, the, just the testimony of these witnesses, and it's not working out very well. Verse 58 says, as that didn't work out, that, that there's testimony that, that comes that, that Jesus said that he's going to destroy the temple, their high place of worship. And then he's going to rebuild it three days later. You can actually see what Jesus said, and that's not what he said. You can see what he said in John 2, 19. And Jesus says something similar, but it's not what they or saying, he said. Jesus was referring not to the temple, the Jewish temple. He's referring to himself, his body, his, the temple of his body. And he said, this, I'll be destroyed. He's talking about the temple will be destroyed, talking about himself. And three days later, it will be raised. So they're trying to make this case that Jesus said that, that he would destroy the temple. And that's not what he said. So, more false testimony, more false witnesses, more twisting of his words. But even that, they couldn't find agreement and they couldn't, they couldn't get the, their stories to, to all fall together. Of course, they're false witnesses and so it's a little hard when everybody's lying about what's actually being said and done. And so, the trial is not, can we just summarize, it is not going well for the per- prosecution. And so, finally, the, the high priest stands up taking matter in his own hands. In verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst of midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, you should just note, for the most part remained silent. The prophet Isaiah said that would be the case prophetically. Like a sheep in Isaiah 53, 7, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I, I love what Calvin, as he wrote about this particular text, as he talks about Jesus on trial, he just makes the point that Jesus could have argued for his innocence. I mean, it's not going well for the prosecution anyway. And so here is Jesus. He's the, he's the son of God, Jesus, who, who is the one that when people heard him teach and heard him, heard him just, just talk about and open up the word they said of him, he teaches like, like, like someone we've never heard before, like one who has authority. Do you not think that Jesus, Jesus, the 
Son of God could not in that moment have confounded and dumbfounded the, these false witnesses and, the, and, and what was going on. Do you not think that he could have talked his way? The one that helped breathe this world into existence could not have talked his way out of the situation. But instead he's silent, willingly submitting himself to the crucifixion in obedience to the will of the Father accepting his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The high priest is getting even more agitated, and so he, he asks a two-part question. He's like, are you the Christ, part one, which he's basically asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And then he asks the second part of the question, are you the Son of the Blessed? The Jews didn't like to actually use the name of God they were very careful about that. And so they would often use substitutes for it. And so a substitute uh, for the name of God is son of the blessed. And so what he's actually asking Jesus is, do you consider yourself divine? Do you consider yourself equal to God? And so Jesus, in this moment, finally, he just puts the cookies on the bottom shelf and he answers the questions of the high priest for weeks as he's done miracles and he's done things, or years really, he's concealed that he's the Messiah. Anytime he has done something or someone says something about who he really is, he said, okay, don't tell anybody else. Let's keep this quiet. But that time is gone. And now the time of him concealing his divinity is gone. And he answers the high priest. And he says, in answer to the question, are you the one? Are you the son of the blessed? Jesus says, I am. I am. I am. And, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, uh, the, from the book of Daniel. It's, a, it's, this, it's this really cool text. The picture of God, it's a picture of God seated on, uh, seated at the right hand, riding on the clouds, right hand of power, riding on the clouds. And the high priest, his head about explodes with anger because he knows exactly what Jesus is saying. All these religious leaders know exactly what Jesus is saying. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of God. And the high priest, verse 63, tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with, blow, with blows. The, the group as a, as a whole knew that he was claiming divinity. He tears his clothes, a sign of intense anger. We don't need any more witnesses. He's condemned himself. And with one voice, this trumped-up Jewish court that's been slinking around in the middle of the night condemns Jesus unanimously. He deserves death. And then notice how they begin to treat Jesus. It's one thing when you know that someone's going to hit you and you can kind of brace for it. But they cover him, cover his face, and they begin to beat him, begin to hit him, begin to mock him. The scene then changes back again to Peter. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are, are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And a servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a, co- a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Peter had said, told everyone, I'll be by your side, Jesus. I won't, I won't, until the end, I I won't leave you. I'll, I'll, I'll be faithful. But now he begins to deny his association with Jesus. And I want you to notice, again, as we, again, we tend to throw Peter into the bus, but I want you to notice that this servant girl wasn't just any servant girl. Who was she? She was the servant girl to the high priest. She had proximity to power. She had proximity to the guy who is in charge of this court that in the end, they're going, they're condemning Jesus to death. And so what if she goes and she would have had access to the high priest? What if she went and she told, because she's the servant of the high priest, and she told them, told him, hey, another one of them is out here. And so he had had a right to be afraid of her asking. Peter tells her, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this guy. If you remember, Jesus had told Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice that night. He didn't think of it then, but that was the first betrayal. The servant girl doesn't give up. Uh, She says then to some of the bystanders, hey, I think this guy is one of them, talking about Peter. And again, Peter denies that he's with Jesus, that he knows Jesus. I'm sure he is just getting more and more agitated with this servant girl. Hey, don't you have somewhere to go? Don't you got some, you know, something to clean or you know, just past your bedtime? Could you just like leave me alone? <laughs> I'm sure he's agitated. But I want you to notice he does not immediately run away. Again, before we totally throw him under the bus, he hangs in there. Galilee was a rural area. People from that region would have had an accent that was recognizable. I'm, we're blessed to have uh, it's Crystal's birthday is this uh, weekend, and Crystal's folks came up. Um, and if you come up and meet her folks, you can talk to her to her mom, especially very and very quickly. You'll notice that she's not from these parts. Okay, uh, I can still tell after 30 plus years of marriage when Crystal's talked to her mother. Because that, that accent begins to kind of bleed into Crystal's uh, way she talks. And, hey, you've been talking to your mom today. You sound like, yeah, you're from Tennessee. Uh, and so you can kind of hear that accent. And in the same way, this is a rural area. They had a recognizable accent. And she's like, yeah, you're, you're one of those, Ga-. they were like, you're one of those Galileans. The other disciples would have been Galileans. They would have recognized the accent. You must be with Jesus. And this time, he doesn't just deny that he was with Jesus, that he knows Jesus, that he's one of them. He calls down curses on himself. And he's not cursing. He's not like saying foul, you know, foul language that he's cursing, uh, you know, blankety blank blank kind of stuff. What he's saying, what it's saying is that he calls down curses. He's saying, if I'm not telling you the truth, may God strike me down. May, and whatever, you know, he's like cursing. That Basically, God curse me if what I'm saying to you is not the, the truth. It was a big deal what he was saying to them. 
And immediately when he does that, the rooster crows the second time. And it's at that moment that he finally recalls what Jesus had said to him. That on this night, you will betray me three times before the rooster crows twice. And as he remembers the words of Jesus, he's broken. He's broken by his failure. Now let's skip back to the court. The Jewish court, if you'll remind, remember, have, has decided that Jesus deserves death. Their law said that they couldn't confirm that until the next day. They, didn't, they wanted to make sure about, you know, in capital cases and cases of death, they wanted to make sure about that. And so it was the next day that they'd have to confirm that. You see that in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, where they confirm that Jesus deserves death. And they refer him then, they're, gonna, they're now going to take him to Pilate because they've got, they, they, they want, they've got reason, in other words. And so they're going to now go to Pilate who has the authority to have him killed. And like I said, Pilate then sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And the final verdict in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, comes down from Pilate. We see it. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged, which means beaten severely, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, in just the few minutes we have left, I think there's some implications for us that we need to get as we look at this story. First, to just recognize today that it should have been us. It should have been us on trial. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was sinless. He's on trial. It's an unjust trial. He's totally innocent, and he could have walked away. He could have talked his way out of it. He could have called down legions of angels to have, to have gotten him out of, of that moment, but he doesn't defend himself. He's silent like a sheep led to the slaughter, as Isaiah said of Jesus. We, on the other hand, we're all guilty. We've all sinned. Scripture confirms that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you look around our world, there is no doctrine with, that with more evidence of its truth and validity than this doctrine that humanity has a sin problem. All of us have a sin problem. As we look around our world, we see it. And as we look at our own stories and we think about our own lives and our own past and who we are, we see it in ourselves if we're honest. So, it should have been us on trial. But Jesus willingly stood in our place and he represented us well because if we were standing before the living God and our lives were on trial and our sins were made evident and the, the court case against us was being, was being, was being thrown out there and, and our lives was, were being looked at, we have no defense of ourselves. We could only stand there in silence because we are all guilty, Jesus, in that moment represented us well. He was innocent. We are not. It should have been us. Also, it has been us. It has been us as we look at the life of Peter denying Jesus. We have all done that. Peter does it multiple times in just this one little story, and it's been us as well. 
We at times have denied his teaching. We have ignored his teaching. We've ignored what he's taught us about forgiveness and loving our enemies and turning the other cheek and loving God more than, than money or denying ourselves or taking up his cross. And the list goes on and on and on of the ways that we have denied Jesus. We've denied Jesus when we have not confessed him to our world. We've denied Jesus like Peter in our hypocrisy when we have said one thing and we've lived another, when we've had this facade of following Jesus, when we've worn the, worn the mask of being a follower of Jesus, but in our private moments, in our secret places, we've covered up our sin and we've harbored things that have remained secret and unconfessed. And at times we have denied Christ like Peter in our idolatry, when we have put other things in the place of Christ, when we've worshipped other things instead of our Lord, whether it be material things or our careers or our egos or the list is of possibilities is practically endless of the things that we can put in place of Jesus. All of us at times have denied Jesus. It has been us. And I think something that we should all ask ourselves today in this moment, as we look at this trial and we look at them condemning Jesus, that world, that age, that time, that group, ask ourselves the question, will we stand when our world is condemning him? Will we stand with Jesus as our world condemns him? As we examine that trial, he was innocent we see the way he was treated. Will we, as we think, of, it's just reminiscent of what was happening then, what is happening now. Will we stand with Jesus as our world puts Jesus on trial? As our world diminishes sin and tells us, well, yeah, what you think might be wrong is not wrong for me. Will we stand with Jesus? Will we stand with Jesus when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Will we think that we have a more highly tuned sense of right and wrong and all things of this world than Jesus? Will we stand with Jesus and what he says? Will we stand with Jesus when our world tells us that what we believe no longer applies because things have changed? Will we stand with Jesus? Will we stand with Jesus on the Bible's morality? Will we stand with Jesus on the sexual ethic that we see in his word? Will we stand with Jesus when it comes to views on marriage or gender or the list goes on? Will we stand with Jesus when the prevailing winds of our favored political party tell us to do this or believe this? Will we stand with some politician instead of standing with Jesus? Will we stand with Jesus? Jesus told us if we would acknowledge him, before men of our generation, that he will stand with us before his Father. And he soberly reminds us that everyone who denies me here on this earth, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. So again, the question, the question, the key question, will we stand with Jesus when our world is condemning him? And then there's one really important final thing that we need to take away today. 
And I want you to go back because it's really easy to miss. Look at verse 64. Talking about the members of the Jewish council, the elders, the chief priests, all of them. They all condemn him as deserving death. It's unanimous. It says they all had a hand in condemning Jesus. And I want you to notice something. Maybe you've never seen before. I didn't see it till this week. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says this. And the word of God. And this is after all. This is after the, the resurrection of Jesus. And the church has been birthed. And Pentecost has happened. And, and, and the word of God is spreading around the world. And it says this. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and here it is and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith a great many of the priests in Jerusalem became obedient to the faith undoubtedly some of the priests that were gathered that night in that sham trial where they stood and they, they mocked Jesus and they, they, they pronounced judgment on Jesus and they said that he's guilty and they condemned him to death. Some of those same people, it says, some of those same ones that night that said, kill him, knowing that probably the Romans would nail him to a cross. They vote to condemn Jesus and now they're experiencing his forgiveness and they've become his followers. Can we just pause and bask in the grace of our God. And you say, I don't know if I can be forgiven. I don't know. I, I've, been, I've gone too far. I've done too much. Just think about them and be encouraged today that God loves you and God wants to show you his grace. And then let's not forget Peter. Peter, who denies Jesus multiple times that night, calling down curses, finally, finally upon himself, ex exclaiming, he had, I, have, I have nothing to do with him. I don't have any idea who that is. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, he makes sure that they tell Peter that he's risen from the dead. And then Jesus goes and he, he, he seeks Peter out. And in John chapter 21, verse 19, the second part of it, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, Jesus looks him in the eye and he says to him, will you follow me? And Jesus reinstates Peter and Peter becomes this amazing leader in the New Testament church that's birthed here in Acts. And so what it reminds us as our worship team comes back up, what it reminds us is it can be us. It can be us. We can accept his forgiveness, the forgiveness that is offered to us as uh, from our Savior, like Peter experienced his forgiveness, like these priests experienced his forgiveness. It can be us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, we can find peace today when we find peace in the knowledge that as we stand before Jesus and we embrace him as our Savior, when we call and we accept what he did for us on the cross, when he stood up for us, when we accept him standing up for us and taking our sin and taking our shame and taking our guilt, we can have peace. We can have forgiveness. We can have grace. Jesus on the cross took our guilt and our shame and our sins. They're charged to him. And what has been charged to him will never again be charged to us. Today, if you'd like to experience that grace, that forgiveness, we'd love to help you in that. We'd love to send you some resources to be helpful. You could text the word Jesus to 269-231-8692.
I'm going to pray in just a minute. I would invite you to pray this prayer and embrace Christ as your Savior. And as we stand, let me ask you some questions as we get ready to worship him. So go ahead and stand. And let me just ask you these really important questions. Will we stand with Jesus when our world is condemning him? That's an important question. It should have been us condemned. It has been us denying him. And it can be us experiencing our guilt and shame, exchanging it, our guilt and our shame, exchanging it for forgiveness and eternal life. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, as we sing these final songs, Father, in this time of worship, we're reminded that your son stood for us, stood in the gap for us, stood for us, represented us, and took our sin and took our shame and took it to the cross and, and bore and, 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 and carried the full weight of our sin on the cross. And God, we thank you. We can't even begin to understand all the implications of that. But God, we celebrate the forgiveness that has been offered us. I thank you for the person right now that's praying. Maybe for the first time, God, forgive me for my sin. I embrace your son as my savior. Maybe there's somebody today that, that has, that at one point embraced Christ and, and they've walked away and Father, they're coming home today. I pray, Father, that it's, if any of us, as we call out on the name of Jesus, that today is a day of grace. I thank you for the forgiveness and the grace that you offer us. And now we worship you in that. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.